0: I'm Pastor Darrell Curtis, and you're listening to my sermon, The Last Year of the Life of Christ, Part 6, in which my point is that the more self-centered we are, the less mature we can become. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit familylifebc.com. July 6th, our lesson for today is the last year of the life of Christ. is the sixth part of this particular series. and. Our text is in Matthew 18, Mark 9 and Luke 9, and it reads as follows. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a big millstone hung around his neck and be sunk in the depths of the sea. What disaster awaits the world for causing someone to sin? It's inevitable that such offense will occur but what disaster awaits the one who causes it god bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer gracious god our father we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of jesus christ for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed holy spirit and for his ability to explain your word so give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty with clarity and with boldness and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Now thank you very much for coming to hear the lessons for today. And Before we begin this our next lesson let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now in this, the last year of his ministry, Jesus is philosophically preparing the disciples for their role in service to humanity and their impending leadership role in the church. Jesus tells the disciples that although they should consider themselves leaders of his organization on earth, the church, that they most need humility to fulfill the role of leadership to which they are being appointed. Jesus did not intend that the disciples lead by command, but by proxy, as their job is not to make the rules, but to simply transmit and role model the rules given to them, by the Lord. Matthew 18, Mark 9 and Luke 9 read as follows. Jesus sat down and called the 12 together and said, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and a servant of all. Then Jesus called a young child to his side and placed him before them. I tell you the truth, he said, unless you change your attitude and become like little children, you will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. The people who humble themselves as this little child are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever is least among you will be great. He took the child in his arms and said to them, whoever receives one such little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but the one who sent me. So Jesus makes it clear to the disciples that humility is required for leadership and the paradigm for leadership is receiving or welcoming others. And I find it interesting that Jesus, when talking to the disciples, specifies that they ought to receive children. Now, what is the significance of children in this pronouncement? I I believe that the child recognizes someone developing maturity, someone who needs guidance rather than someone that needs help. We should be humble enough to recognize our need for God's guidance to bring us to maturity, and as we become more mature, then recognize our responsibility to pass on the fruits of our maturation onto someone coming behind us that needs them. Listen to the words of John 3.16, which say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's purpose for sending Jesus into the world was not to provide physical healing, although Jesus did so. Healings are simply a physical display of God's power to advertise the change in our relationship with God's kingdom. God has acted in a miraculous manner toward man throughout recorded history, but the miracles themselves were never the purpose for God's actions. God performed miracles to invite us into a relationship with him, which is that which John terms as everlasting life. Our next life, our everlasting life, is an issue for us although death was not originally part of God's intentional will for man. Man disobeyed God, rejecting God, and severing his relationship with him. And because of this disobedience, God has made this a temporary world. And the temporary things of this world that we find so important hold much less importance for God. Psalm ninety ten through 12 tells us, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So as we are aware of the finite nature of this life and the existence of heaven, it is only reasonable based upon the emphasis upon wisdom that we see in the scriptures to conclude that this life is a series of exercises to prepare us for the next one, the everlasting one. God's objective for us is that we first recognize our need for maturity then endeavor to obtain maturity by learning to obey his word, then developing the correct perspective on the results of doing so, and then augmenting that maturity by passing on the benefit of our maturation to the ones coming behind us so that they can exceed our accomplishments. We cannot learn the complete plan of God and become fully mature in one lifetime but our goal should be, and our responsibility is, to learn, to develop, and then to pass on our wisdom to the ones coming behind us. This being true, one of the most important things that we can learn is other directedness. The more self-centered that we are, the less mature that we can become. Jesus is telling us in the passages of scripture that we have already read, that we are participants in something that is bigger than ourselves. And as long as our thinking revolves around ourselves, we cannot develop the personal characteristics required for maturity. It is certainly more comfortable for us to think of ourselves first and others later, if at all, but such thinking leads us into a dead end of selfishness rather than the road to maturity. Much of wisdom is the humility to recognize that the others with whom we come into contact are in God's plan as well as we are, and that our small contribution to the kingdom of God, while we are commanded by God to make it, is not really going to tip the scales one way or another. The best way to see ourselves is as we ourselves in a body, the body of Christ. We perform our function for as long as we are alive, and then we pass on, making room for another cell to continue the life function that we perform. As the old folks used to say, one monkey don't stop, no show. Now, Jesus' command to receive others caused John to have a question about something they had done. Our text continues, John said to Jesus, Master, We saw a man casting out demons in your name, and we made him stop because he doesn't follow with us. Don't forbid him, Jesus said, because no one can work a great work in my name and then promptly speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, no one who in my name gives you a cup of water because you belong to Christ will ever lose his reward. So Jesus reinforces the cell theory that I mentioned earlier. He makes it clear to the the disciples that the world is not about them and that others can contribute to the kingdom of God even if they are doing so differently than they, the disciples, are doing. We may not be influencing people in the same way as are some others, but we must all remember that we are all cells in the body and our job is to do the task that we are appointed. Listen to the explanation given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12-27. to The Bible says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore out of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore out of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part that lacks it, so that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So self-aggrandizement is not part of God's program, and it is important for us to recognize that we are only cells in the body, and that our appearance on the stage of life is brief and temporary, and that our major purpose for being on the stage is to prepare the way for the cells that are coming after us. As long as we maintain the proper perspective and recognize the brevity and the purpose of our contribution to the body, our contribution will be in line with that which the Lord has appointed us to do. The proper perspective allows us to successfully contribute to the body. Jesus continues to emphasize our responsibility to prepare for the ones coming after us in our text for today. Mark 18, uh, Matthew 18, Mark 9 and Luke 9 continues, "But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a big millstone hung around his neck." and be sunk in the depths of the sea. What disaster awaits the world for causing someone to sin? It is inevitable that such offense will occur, but what disaster awaits the one who causes it? If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It would be better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to keep your two hands or feet and be thrown into hell, the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It would be better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with both eyes to be thrown into hell fire, where the worm never dies and the flames never go out. Now the thing that we often fail to understand is the effect that our sin has on other people. Jesus tells us in this passage of Scripture that the reason for the severity of the punishment for sin is because of the effect that sin has on the body. If we could sin in isolation, maybe sin would not be so bad. But the problem is that we cannot sin in isolation. Every sin that we commit affects someone negatively. As Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the Lord declared his goodness to Moses in these words in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, how is a father's iniquity visited upon his children? We are so created that we tend to follow in the footsteps of the people that are instrumental in raising us up to maturity, which in the normative case are our parents. It is a fact that most males seek the approval of their fathers and most females are bonded to their mothers. We often do not read the scriptures to figure out the correct course of action, but we either look to the behavior of someone that we consider a role model or consult with someone whose opinion that we respect. And there is generally no one, especially in our formative years, that has our respect more than our parents, whether they deserve it or not. Take the example of Dave, who began speaking with his counselor. I've been married 17 years, he said. I'm 47 years old and have eight and 12 year old daughters. My wife and I have been together for this entire time. But there hasn't been much to our marriage for the last six or seven years. The counselor asked, why have you behaved less lovingly? they responded, lack of reciprocation. It seemed that I was always imposing on her. It seemed as though after she had our second child, she no longer decided to participate in marriage in an intimate way. We never fight and we seldom disagree, but we just, the loving is gone. We're committed to the kids, and we're committed to the marriage, so we're staying together. But my question to you is, should we try to explain this to the kids? The counselor replied, absolutely not. They queried even if they pick up on things? Well, responded the counselor, they wouldn't pick up on things if you two stopped the phoniness. If you are committed to your daughters, then behave better. All right, said Dave, that makes sense. The counselor continued, that means in spite of the lack of reciprocation, you are to behave as though you have the best marriage in the Western Hemisphere. Treat your wife affectionately and speak to her the same way. Come behind her at dinner and give her a little kiss on the head or on the back of the neck. That's it. Do this so that your daughters grow up seeing a husband treat his wife well. Show your daughters the proper husband behavior so that their expectations of how their husband should treat them will be correct. And don't do this to make your wife change her behavior because she may not. Do this because you are committed to your daughters. If you are committed to the marriage for the sake of your daughters, then you have to act like it, although you're not getting any. Dave thought and then responded, that's good advice and thank you very much. The counselor continued, because there's no point in staying together if your home is going to be unpleasant and ferociously cold. You need to put in the effort to make the atmosphere pleasant and you can do that all by yourself. You don't need your wife's cooperation. I doubt, however, that if you come behind her and just stroke her hair, or if you're going back to your chair at dinner, and you give her a quick peck on the cheek, that she's going to resist or get angry. Dave considered, no, I guess she won't. That's probably true, he said. The counselor replied, so behave in the way that you want your daughter's future husbands to behave toward them. All right, said Dave, thank you very much. Once you have children, The focus of a marital relationship should be providing a good role model of a husband or a wife for your children because those are probably the roles with which your children will have to deal when they grow up. Most fellows will grow up with some traits that their father socialized into them, and most girls will grow up to be like their mothers in some way. Children also pick up traits from adults that they admire. So our text warns us, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a big millstone hung around his neck and be sunk in the depths of the sea. What disaster awaits the world for causing someone to sin? It's inevitable that such offense will occur, but what disaster awaits the one who causes it? If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It would be better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to keep your two hands or feet and be thrown into hell, the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It would be better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with both eyes to be thrown into hell fire where their worm never dies and the flames never go out. Dawn started speaking with her counselor. I have a wonderful man that I've known for six years. We've been engaged for five years, and although he's given me an engagement ring, we have never set a date. We've owned two homes together. We're both educated professionals. I'm 35 and he's 41. I'm just wondering, how long do I continue to play house? The counselor replied, I thought you said you had two different homes. Are you shacking up with him? Don clarified, no, no, we've owned two different homes. We bought a house together, fixed it up, and sold it. We're fixing up our second house, and it's like we're married. No, the counselor retorted, it's not like you're married. There's nothing like marriage. Marriage means that you're committed to one another And you can only make a marital commitment by marrying. People shack up specifically because they do not want to make a marital commitment. So the decision to shack up is completely different thinking from the decision to marry. And you have been shacking up for five years. Do you have any minor children in your home? Dom replied, I share joint custody of my 13-year-old daughter. She goes back and forth between her dad and me. Well, said the counselor disapprovingly, your daughter is learning how to live like an unpaid prostitute. That is what your daughter is learning. Dodd protested, actually, my daughter really likes my fiance. And the counselor said, that doesn't matter. I'm not talking about what she likes. I'm talking about what she's learning. She is learning that emotion is more important than commitment. She's learning that it's not important for a man to commit to her as though she is special to him. She's learning to give herself to a man who's not willing to give himself to her, to commit his life to her. You're teaching her that there is no hope that a man will really commit his life to her and that she should settle for hard carbon on 14 karat gold rather than commitment. Don said, Well, I asked Dave why he and the counselor cut Don off saying, I don't care why. And you shouldn't care why either. My advice to you is either to get him out or get out yourself, whichever would be more appropriate. Tell your daughter that you made a terrible, embarrassing mistake and that now you realize that the reason that there are morals, values, principles, and ethics is to protect you from allowing feelings to lead you down the wrong path so that you do the wrong thing and hurt yourself. Don tried again, but he thinks that I still have feelings for my ex. The counselor replied, it doesn't matter what he thinks or whom you do or do not have feelings for. Either way, you shouldn't be shagging up and teaching your daughter the wrong thing by your behavior. The rest of this is just drama, and it really doesn't matter. I don't care what his excuse is for not marrying you, because if what you are doing is not bad enough to keep him from enjoying your your housekeeping and your body for five years, then it's not bad enough to keep him from committing to do so on a permanent basis by marrying you. If he can't marry you, then he shouldn't sleep with you either. Dawn laughed nervously. Well, we don't make love that much anymore, and I just don't want to. But the counselor cut Dawn off again. I'm sorry. What is there about what I said that you do not understand? Dawn stopped talking for a moment, and then she started to cry. I'm afraid what leaving is going to do to my daughter. The counselor responded, you're damaging your daughter by staying. The best thing that you can do is teach her that what you have been doing is wrong and rectify it, not try to justify it. Don replied, but I just feel like Dave is the most, her dad is not really emotionally stable, and she gets along so well with Dave, it would be a huge loss for her. Don said to counselor, it would be a big gain for your daughter to see her mother treat herself with respect she would learn a valuable lesson that would serve her well for the rest of her life. Dawn asked, do you think we can move apart and still have a relationship? I mean, but the counselor cut her off again. It doesn't matter to me whether you can or not. What matters to me is what you are doing to your daughter. Dawn pleaded, moving would be taking away the dog, the house, And the counselor cut her off again, Don, I think I've said my piece. You're living the life of an unpaid prostitute, and you're teaching your daughter everything that you don't want her to know about love, marriage, and commitment. You have a million excuses for what you are doing, but what you are doing is still wrong, and it makes your daughter more likely to get knocked up at 15. After all, you're teaching her that morals, values, principles, and ethics don't matter if your emotions do. And you're teaching her that if you like a guy a lot, it's okay to shack up with him. And you're teaching her that is if you like a guy a lot, it's okay to have sex with him. It doesn't matter that there's no commitment, no safety, no security, no intense bond. Is that really what you want her to believe? Is this the most that you want her to hope for? Is this the legacy that you wanted to have from you? My mother is not a wife, but is just a shack of honey that sleeps with a guy that won't marry her. Is this what you want her to say?" Dawn finally gave in. No, she said, of course not. The counselor replied, then you have to get out of that house today. Don finally capitulated. Okay. Thank you. Jesus makes it clear that the morals, values, principles, and ethics that we glean from the Bible need to supersede, meaning to be more important to us than our feelings and emotions, or we make mistakes that damage our children and the children that are looking up to us as role models. Matthew 18, Mark 9, and Luke 9 tell us, But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a big millstone hung around his neck and be sunk in the depths of the sea. What disaster awaits the world for causing someone to sin? It's inevitable that such offense will occur, but what disaster awaits the one who causes it? If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It would be better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to keep your two hands or feet and be thrown into hell, the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It would be better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with both eyes to be thrown into hell fire where the worm never dies and the flames never go out. Jesus continues everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can it regain its flavor? Have salt in yourselves and live in peace with one another, with with each other. Now in the first part of this verse, everyone will be salted with fire. Both salt and fire are referred to as agents of purification, Jesus is reiterating as he spoke in the earlier part of the passage that we need to purify ourselves and our behaviors voluntarily in order to avoid the place where the worms never die and the flames never go out, which is an illusion an illusion to hell in which those that go there will be everlastingly eaten by worms as dead bodies are and in eternal torment in the flames. In the second part of the verse, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can it regain its flavor? Have salt in yourselves and live in peace with each other. Jesus tells us that if we have salt in ourselves, that is, if we purify ourselves voluntarily, that we will not have to deal with the consequences of causing one another to sin, which will, in fact, cause us to live in peace with one another. Jesus goes on to say, make sure that you don't despise one of these little ones because I'm telling you that their angels in heaven constantly gaze on the face of my heavenly father. For the son of man came to save what was lost. We are responsible for our behavior, for our example, for that which we show those that are looking at our lives as a guidepost of how we should live. Jesus, our example, tells us in Matthew ten thirty-eight and 39, and he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The point remains that we are not living for ourselves, but as a beacon for those who are watching us live. Many people don't want the responsibility for caring for the next generation, for children, but would rather just be left alone to live their own lives and enjoy their own selfish pleasures. But God's prime directive, given in the eight portion of Genesis 128, is, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. The blessing of God goes hand in hand with the directive to multiply. Remember the parallel of the cell. We are here to live for a short time and then to die, but first to multiply, that we might leave the body in position to flourish after our individual death. If we fail to fulfill the function of multiplication in this life, of what value will we be to God in the next life? Jesus gives us the parable in Matthew twenty-five, fourteen through 30. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his good to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received the two talents Gained two more also But he who received one Went and dug in the ground And hid his lord's money After a long time the lord of those servants came And settled accounts with them So he who had received the five talents Came and brought five other talents Saying lord you delivered to me five talents Look I have gained five talents more beside them His lord said to him well done Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant!" You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received my own with interest. So take it, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has to for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for the responsibility that you have given us. And for the and we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to acknowledge our responsibility and to recognize that in all cases and in all places that there is someone that's looking up to us, that's looking to us to see how they should behave. And we ask you, Lord, that you help us not to cause anyone else to sin because we don't want that millstone to be hung around our neck and that we would be cast in the depths of the sea. Help us to live lives that are pleasing in your sight And help us to provide a good role model for those that are watching. And we ask you to bless our children and help us to raise them in the way that they should go, so that when they get old, they do not depart from it. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for all that are in the house today, and we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace, and most of all, We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit familylifebc.com.